You're listening to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast, the official podcast of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. We're bringing you the very best from the APSF newsletter and website, as well as the latest information in perioperative patient safety. Thanks for joining us. Patient Safety Podcast. My name is Allie Bechtel, and I'm your host. Thank you for joining us for another show. Once again, Dr. Steve Barker joins me on the show today to continue our conversation about patient safety. So get ready for your commute, lace up your shoes, or grab a cup of tea as we get ready to talk about the patient safety movement and incorporating the patient experience into anesthesia patient safety education, research, and content. Communication continues to be a key component in effective handoffs of care and improving anesthesia patient safety. So I was wondering if you could start by introducing what the patient safety movement is and how you got involved. Well, the patient safety movement was founded uh, about 11 years ago by Joe Chiani, uh, and he is the CEO of Massimo and, and a good friend. And um, he, he observed that there were, you know, many thousands of deaths every year, not just in the operating room, but everywhere in the hospital caused by medical errors. And, you know, these are deaths that did not need to occur from a variety of causes. Started this foundation, which is now totally independent. I was involved from the very beginning. Um, I am currently a board of directors member. I'm a frequent speaker for them. And I chair a couple of committees. And the one that I uh, chair that, that I am most excited about is called Handoff Communications. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, you know, most uh, preventable medical errors that result in harm or death involve communication failures. In fact, the Joint Commission has come out and said the same thing. One of the key forms of those are handoff communications when care is being transferred from one person or team to another and some vital information is left out. So I, I am heading up a committee that's working on that. We've got what's uh, what we call an APPS, uh, an actionable patient uh, safety solution. And um, it and guess what? As a, as the aviator coming into this from from the pilot's point of view, my first uh, thought about a solution is we need checklists, just like they use in an airplane for any any startup, any routine procedure, or any emergency. You have a checklist. Well, the same should be true of handoffs, and and so that's what we're doing. Um, so I'm, I've been involved with the patient safety movement from the beginning. I have also been involved with APSF for many more years, even than that. And uh, so I, you know, the two have very much in common. And I, one of my goals uh, coming up is to, to to help develop more collaborations between the APSF and the patient safety movement. So I hope to see that. Patient safety movement has a different uh, 
membership and constituency. It's uh, what, and, and this is another thing that excites me about it. It's not just anesthesia, and it's not just providers. Uh, it's doctors, nurses, hospital administrators, uh, payers. We have people from CMS involved. We have uh, the legal side involved. We have insurance companies. We we have uh, risk management people. Uh, but last and not least at all, in fact, most important, the patients themselves are members of our organizations and their stories. I've gotten to know a number of them personally quite well, and their stories uh, will just break your heart. But there's lessons in every one of them. And I think we uh, we need to learn more from the patients and involve them more in, in the development of patient safety. And that goes for education, too. Thank you for bringing that up. That is one area that the APSF is looking to expand as well with patient-centered content. What do you envision is the biggest difference in patient safety-related content for anesthesia professionals who are providing the anesthesia and patient care and the content that would be delivered to patients? You know, in anesthesia care, it's it's a little bit different than most others because during a great part of our care, the patient is unconscious. And obviously during that time, they can't be part of the care team. But, you know, I think we got to look beyond that. We need to spend more time and effort talking to and interacting with the patient before they go to sleep and, and afterwards as well. And in the pre-op clinic, when we talk to the patients, um, in many cases, it would seem to me to be appropriate to have some family members there, too. I mean, maybe the patient's, uh, you know, an 85-year-old whose memory isn't quite what it used to be, and we need to, to know that and how they, how they work. But if maybe if we had one of the children there, we could find out more about the patient's uh, healthcare history. And, and it, it's all about the history. You know, I, I keep saying uh, my favorite philosopher is a guy named George Santayana, who's the one who said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Um, and that is, you know, aviation has learned that lesson. We need to apply it more in medicine, especially in anesthesia. So the patients, yeah, they need to be involved both before and after the anesthesia experience. Also, the patients, if they're educated and know more about their disease and also the procedure they're undergoing, they can help you diagnose problems, like especially in the post-op period, uh, before you would notice them. Uh, they, the patient in that respect is the best monitor, or maybe it's the family member that notices something uh, that the patient didn't even notice. So, yeah, they have to be involved, and, and we need to bring that about. Even in the pre-interview with patients, if we ask about functional status, for example, I think sometimes it's hard to get the, the accurate assessment because without a deeper conversation, because patients say, oh, yeah, I'm active. And then their family member is sitting there behind them, shaking their head. No, they're not. Yes. It's a non-judgmental question, but we do really want a good sense of how, how much activity load are you able to do at home regularly? And are you having any symptoms? And, and sometimes in a five-minute quick interview, it's hard to get that answer. 
And so having that time and being able to communicate well would be really helpful. I agree. I, I, what I like to do is I ask them specifically, well, tell me what you do. You know, uh, I mean, the old, how many flights of stairs can you climb? Uh, what do you do for hobbies? Uh, that tells you something about their mental status as well as their physical. You know, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I still get out on the tennis court. Not not as good as I was in college, but I still do it. And so it's um, it's important to find out about the patient's lifestyle and, and activities. We always have asked, how much do you drink? You know, how many glasses of wine do you? Well, I want to know how much do you play and what do you do? And then I like to include that in the note specifically if I can. Patient goes to exercise classes at the gym three days a week or swims laps, you know, just because then that's even more information than just can do greater than four Mets. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd like to be specific. Now, do you think there are any pitfalls to be careful of when providing patient centered content related to anesthesia patient safety? Well, it's a good question. The main pitfall is you, you, the provider, has to figure out while you're talking to the patient, what is their potential level of understanding? And so what you say to one patient is not the same as what you say to, to another. You kind of gauge the conversation uh, and the level of detail and, and technical content to what you have assessed as their ability to understand their educational level and what do they know about their disease. And of course, with the advent of universal internet everywhere, that's both good news and bad news. A lot of our patients have read a lot about their disease, uh, but it may not all be correct. Um, so I try, yeah, I try to assess early in the interview what, you know, what level is that patient's uh, education and comprehension and ability to understand uh, the technical details and then kind of gauge it to the individual. And that's a, that's a pitfall that I have seen. If, if you shoot over their heads, they basically just stop listening. Do you think we'll see more patient-centered content and anesthesia-related care in the future? I do. I certainly hope we will. Uh, you know, I think the message is getting out there to the medical profession. Uh, I think anesthesia has, I mean, frankly, I think anesthesia has led the way in patient safety for many years. In fact, uh, others have, has, have observed this for a long time. Look at our mortality rate in the operating room. You know, it's gone down by like two or three orders of magnitude since I was a little baby having my tonsillectomy under open drop ether anesthesia. Um, it, it, it's one of my earliest traumatic memories, and it might be a, some, you know, a hidden reason why I eventually went into anesthesiology. But, um, yeah, I think patient-centered, you know, we are waking up to that. But as I said, it's got, it's got pitfalls. It requires education, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. You have to you have to customize it for the patient that you're dealing with and the, and the family. And maybe, you know, and, and you might run into situations where the patient can't understand 
the technical details, but maybe there's a family member that can, and you work with them too. And, uh, you know, and they can communicate better with the patient than, than you can. What do you hope to see for the future regarding anesthesia and patient safety? I think, I hope we will keep moving in the direction that we've started. Uh, one is to get the more public consciousness of it so that the patients again can be part of the team and help. And that, that requires kind of a public awareness better than what we have today. Two, I want to see uh, the technology continue to improve, but equally or maybe more important than the technology itself is the education on the technology that we discussed earlier. And that's where I like to help and think maybe I can contribute a little something. Uh, And then three, I'd like to continue, um, uh, as I said earlier, flying the anesthesia machine, applying the lessons that we learned from aviation and other uh, engineering specialties, apply those lessons to into medicine and specifically to anesthesiology. We have so much to learn from what aviation has done in terms of passenger safety and, and aircraft safety. Uh, it's, um, it, it's amazing. And, and like I said, we, we can learn a lot and improve a lot from what they have done. I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier about your work with handoffs. And can you just speak about what makes a really effective handoff? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. What makes a, a very good handoff is, is that the, uh, okay, there's traditionally t- two people involved. There's one, the, the what's called the sender and the receiver, the person who's transferring the care and the person who's taking over the care. But the key is to make it not just a transmitter receiver one-way conversation. For starters, it's got to be a two-way conversation. The transmitter and the receiver are talking back and forth to each other. Uh, two heads are better than one, and the two talking together might come up with aha, something that the original caregiver, the transmitter, hadn't thought of. And, you know, when the new eyes look at all of this, i.e. the receiver. So it's it's a two-way conversation. And that's that's inherent in the checklist that I've developed. I, um, there, there's, we got like 20 different checklists, by the way. There's that many different identifiable handoffs that take place within the hospital. About six of those are perioperative, so they involve anesthesia directly. Uh, but then the other ingredient that I've that I've tried to bring into this recently is, well, maybe it's not just a two-way conversation sender-receiver. It's a sender-receiver-patient or family. And yes, I know the patient's unconscious during a lot of our handoffs in anesthesia, but um, there's a lot of the other handoffs for for example, from the recovery room to the to the ICU, where the patient uh, might be awake and fairly alert, uh, or there's maybe a family member available there. So it's uh, to to put it more briefly, it's a two way conversation. We've got to get both people looking at the same problem and combining their insights. And then obviously the other key factor is you can't forget stuff. 
That's the purpose of a checklist. When people protest to me, oh, I don't want to do that. A checklist is a recipe. It takes away my creative thinking. No, it doesn't. It's not a recipe. Uh, and by the way, you know, my my friend Atul Gawande, famous surgeon now who is who developed the checklist manifesto for surgeons, agrees with this. It's not a recipe. It's a tool to prevent you from forgetting stuff. And we are up. We have, uh, you know, three reasons why we forget stuff. We're in a world of increasing complexity. The handoffs are more and more complicated. Uh, we have a, a lot of time pressure. We may not have all day to do this handoff. Like if you're running from the ER to the operating room, you may literally have one minute while you're running alongside a gurney. And then three is the presence of what we call distractors. That is, other things happen during or around the handoff that distract your information. They may be totally irrelevant things. I can give some some almost humorous examples of those. Um, and the distractor makes you forget stuff. There's a lot of examples of that in aviation where a distractor cause the pilot or the co-pilot to forget to do something that they would normally do and that caused the crash. And it could be something as simple as the music that's playing. Oh, yeah. Be a distractor. The music is often, oh, I have, I have often had to ask the music to be turned down. Distractors, both in aviation and in medicine, cause something to be missed in a checklist and... Uh, disaster was the result. The anesthesia match just happened uh, a couple weeks ago. And for new anesthesia residents who will be starting in a couple of months, what do you think, what would be your message to, to them about how to start their residency, keeping in mind how to keep patients safe while they're providing anesthesia care? What drew me into anesthesia, I started out as a I wanted to be a surgeon, um, was the fact that we, we do more that directly involves the human physiology, the pharmacology, and the technology. That's what you know attracted me in all three of those things. I'm not a pharmacologist, but I love to study how drugs and humans interact and, and uh, you know all of that, uh, all of those interactions. Learn to fly the air, the airplane. That is, learn that in anesthesia, you don't have all day to make decisions. You have to do it in real time. So you have to learn to gather information from a number of channels, not just your monitors, but looking around the room. In fact, another you know another new technology that I'm suggesting and trying to get developed is a, a form of virtual goggles. You know, the, I mean, the, the, the augmented reality goggles now are so advanced, they just look like eyeglasses. It just looks like you're wearing a pair of glasses. So that instead of turning our backs on the surgeons and the patients to look at our monitors, which we do all the time, uh, imagine having to do that in an airplane, we can be looking over the drapes, looking into the wounds, seeing what the surgeon is doing, uh, watching their interactions with the patient and the nurse. But at the same time, up in the corner of our vision, we see all of our monitors. And I'm working on a grant actually through APSF 
uh, with that, uh, with uh, Steve Greenberg. And uh, it's, um, it's promising to me, you know, the technology is there. So this to me ought to be a, yeah, what are we waiting for? And uh, we're, we're hoping to move ahead with that. Um, I would say to the new residents, you, you got to learn the technology, but you've also got to learn that flying the airplane involves more than just looking at your instrument panel. You got to know what's going on in the real world, i.e. what's going on in the patient and with the surgeon and in the room. And so you're constantly moving and looking around. You're not focusing on one thing. It's the ultimate in multitasking. That's one of the things that it excited me, I guess, about anesthesia. It's multitasking, it's integrating information from a bunch of different sources, and it's acting in real time. You can't sit back and say, I'm not sure what's going on here. I think I'll call for a consult. You know, we, we don't get to do that. Thank you so much to Barker for joining me on the show again today. What a great conversation all about anesthesia patient safety. If you have any questions or comments from today's show, please email us at podcast at APSF.org. Please keep in mind that the information in this show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical or legal advice. We hope that you will visit APSF.org for detailed information and check out the show notes for links to all the topics we discussed today. This is our 99th episode of the podcast. We hope that you will join us next week for our 100th show. In the meantime, we would love to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Let's continue the conversation about anesthesia patient safety all week long while waiting for the next podcast to drop. Until next time, stay vigilant so that no one shall be harmed by anesthesia care. Anesthesia care.